are finishing today a little series uh, looking at the life of Joseph in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. This is the, f- the fifth and final um, talk to conclude our little series, um, seeing Jesus in the life of Joseph. And what a life it was. God gave Joseph big dreams. And yet he suffered great pain before those dreams were fulfilled. Hated and sold by his brothers as a slave to Egypt. And despite his diligence, unfairly sent to prison. And yet then incredibly raised to a throne in Egypt where his foresight and brilliance saved many people during what was essentially a global famine. I think Joseph's story is such an inspiring mixture of enduring suffering and achieving glory. Our final stop, though, in our journey is to see what happens after Joseph's father, Jacob, dies. At the end of chapter 49, um, Jacob, the the description there of Jacob's death uh, is given. Because of the famine, Joseph's Joseph's brothers and Jacob and all of their families had moved to Egypt. And the first thing to notice is how much the Egyptians loved this family, how much the Egyptians took this family to their hearts. We know this because when Jacob dies, the, bit, the end of chapter 49 and the first part of chapter 50, which we didn't read, there's an amazing story of, of a kind of funeral. This huge company of officials and chariots and horses travel with Joseph and all of his brothers back to Canaan, where they'd come from, to bury Jacob in the family tomb. If you look at at verse 9, chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. Being buried in Canaan, where they'd come from, was Jacob's dying wish. But this ends up almost being like a state funeral procession. You can imagine all, all of the most important officials in Pharaoh's court are told to stop what they were working on for a few weeks and travel to Canaan to accompany Joseph and his brothers. Even some of the people in Canaan, when they saw this colourful, sombre group uh, come to um, Canaan, they're they're, they're astonished. The Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. They even renamed the place. It was so significant. Jacob was so highly respected because the Egyptians all loved Joseph. And you get that, don't you, in this kind of funeral um, scene. But the big thing that I want us to notice is in verse 15, which we did read, is that after Jacob dies, all of Joseph's brothers are scared. 
when Joseph's brothers saw that their father Jacob was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Remember that this is the first time that Joseph has been back to Canaan for possibly 30 years. This is where he grew up. He left at the age of 17. This is possibly the first time he's been back to Canaan. Maybe this trip reminds Joseph of how much his brothers had hated him and bullied him as a, in his youth. It, that, that's not a happy memory, is it, as he goes back to Canaan. But maybe this colourful trip also reminds him of the, the, the incredible support of Pharaoh's entire royal court. And this underlines how much he is loved now by the Egyptians. Appreciated. And I wonder whether these brothers can see in this journey, whether Joseph is being reminded of how much they hated him and he's being reminded of how much the Egyptians love him. And now that Jacob's God gone, they feel very alone. They're afraid that now their dad is gone, Joseph's going to punish them for all the cruel things they did to him two or three decades earlier. It's a, it's a little bit of comedy... Uh, gold here as well in verse 16 they make this pathetic attempt to secure their safety don't they before our dad died he told us to tell you that you've got to forgive us and it's like it's like you can't see through a plan like that it's it's like it's a pathetic attempt isn't it to kind of get them get joseph kind of on their side even now they're still haunted by guilt and fear but isn't Joseph's reaction at the end of verse 17 so poignant? When their message came to him, Joseph wept. It's almost as if Joseph, he's grieved deeply that they don't trust him, isn't he? The fact this is their issue, not Joseph. They're, they're haunted by their guilt and thinking that he's going to punish them. But that reality is such a source of sadness for Joseph. Do you not, do you not know how much I love you? It, their message makes him cry. And so in verse 18, these brothers come and they throw themselves down before Joseph, pleading for their lives. And then we come to what I think are some of the most astonishing verses in the, in the entire Bible. In verses 19 down to 21. Let, let's just read those verses again. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, 
But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and for your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. This afternoon, I want us to focus on verse 20. And here it is on the screen. Joseph says to his brothers, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. You, you'll notice on the program that I've entitled this, this last talk with the word perspective. They've all had a word. And, and the fifth word is the word perspective. Where on earth does Joseph get such an amazing an unexpected perspective on what has happened to him and how he's got here to where he is today. Uh, many of you know that we've had some wonderful um, uh, wreath-making events going on over the past weekend. You wouldn't believe it. Look at this room now, would you? This room was full of greenery on Friday and Saturday night. And one of the wonderful details in the background were the slow cookers, did you notice the slow cookers? Lots of great things happened. But these two slow cookers, they were filled with fruit and spices and cinnamon sticks. And they were brought to the boil. And the idea was that they made the place smell Christmassy. We did have to stop one or two people trying to drink the stuff. Well, one lady, I was saving on the hatch on Friday. And one lady said, if I drink this, will I be able to drive? And I was like, you, you, you might be able to drive, but you might be going to the toilet afterwards. Um, I didn't say that to her, but I said, no, no, don't. We, we had to guard it. So the smells were nice, but the health and safety wasn't so good. Um, they thought it was mulled wine, I think. It all smells so delicious. Slow cookers are great. Um, whoever invented slow cookers. Um, slow cookers will bring things to the boil. And then simmer and cook slowly. And by the end, the food is tender and the room is filled with smells that make you salivate. It's like if you, if sometimes people put them on and then go to work and they come back and the house is filled with beautiful, tender smells. I want to suggest that Joseph's life has been something like that. And his response to his brothers here comes after years of life experience and mature reflection. Rather than succumbing to cynicism or hardness or blame, Joseph somehow... has this unshakable confidence and such a sensitive but realistic attitude that, that frees him to be warm and kind. This statement here in Genesis 50 is a summary of Joseph's faith and theology and I want to suggest that it smells delicious. 
It is actually the fruit of a whole life simmering. A life lived trusting God. And there's a richness here that has taken years to develop. His traumatic experience at the hands of his brothers of injustice and hurt and tears have not made him bitter. Rather, God's gradual healing of his wounds have served to make him better. And Joseph's settled perspective here is even that what had been a total disaster in his life, he now counts as a tremendous blessing. You intended it for harm, but God intended it for good. Now, here's what we're going to try and do. Um, I I, I am going to butcher every rule of PowerPoint slides this afternoon. Um, But I really want you to bear with me. I've just got to say that at the beginning. Um, This is so important, and it was the best way I could think of to portray what I want to portray, okay? So first, let's try and briefly unpack Joseph Wade here. And then once we've done that, I want to flip it and see how all of what happens here points to Jesus. And I hope by the end my slides don't make your eyes hurt. Um, now, now you know that, hopefully they won't. My basic premise here is that several things are all true at the same time for Joseph. And I'm gonna give, let, let me give you three concepts that are all present here in Joseph's statement in verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Three things. Number one, evil really is evil. I want to underline the fact here that Joseph does not excuse his brothers and the pain that they had caused him. You intended to what? Harm me. And they did harm him. And it really did hurt. Joseph here, therefore, is not in denial about what has really happened to him. He doesn't minimize the hurt that he has felt in his life at their hands. It has been said, we're we're a very multi-ethnic church now, it has been said that we British are historically very undemonstrative. People talk about Brits having stiff upper lips. You know, it's not good to express our feelings. Perhaps we're getting better at that as Brits. We have much to learn from from other uh, ethnic uh, groups, don't we? But I, I wonder whether this kind of stoic thinking can creep into our Christian lives. Though, Joseph here also knows that God is in control. We'll get to that. But that doesn't mean that evil is not somehow still evil. Even the fact that God could transform and overcome this evil doesn't mean that it's not evil. Sometimes we can be too quick to try to jump to find answers. And perhaps sometimes... 
we need to slow down trusting that God is in control doesn't mean that we have to pretend that evil doesn't hurt am I not allowed to cry when bad things happen is it somehow a loss of faith in God to express that something is hurting me I want to suggest here that Joseph is very realistic and honest about the fact that these brothers wronged him and that it had really hurt. Evil really is evil. You intended to harm me. Friends, this means that when things hurt, you can cry. Sometimes that needs to be said, doesn't it? Secondly, Joseph here acknowledges that people really are responsible. Joseph also recognizes here that his brothers meant it. You intended to harm me. No, I think that our if you well, our human hearts, if, if you're anything like me. Our human hearts are really, really, really good at evading responsibility. I I think this is one of our core key skills (laughs) as human beings. And we we excuse our own behavior. I I think sometimes we like expect a lot from other people, but we excuse ourselves, don't we? I love it on the TV show, The Apprentice, when Alan Sugar asks, who is responsible for the failure of this task? And then there's 10 minutes of the candidates blaming each other it wasn't me it was until alan sugar blows a fuse i I was thinking about this and i wonder whether we blame three p's these brothers in this story could have blamed their terrible behavior first of all on their past if if you'd had the father that we had you would understand Do you know that he didn't love us at all? (laughs) He only really loved Joseph. Whatever we did, we couldn't make him happy. Now, I'm I'm not, of course, minimizing the pain of a difficult past. But as Joseph says here, you intended to harm me. They could also have blamed their actions on other people. Joseph himself seemed to have sent them into a mad fit of jealousy. Who does he think he is? If you had a brother like Joseph, (laughs) you'd have done exactly what we did. Isn't this how we process blame? Husbands and wives blame their spouse. Kids blame their parents. Employees blame their bosses. Sometimes bosses blame their employees. Even citizens blame the government. Happened in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? When sin came into the world, Adam blamed his wife. More than that, perhaps he even blamed God for giving him a faulty model. You know, if you hadn't given me this woman, this particular woman, I wouldn't have done this. Blame 
Blame, blame. Eve blames the serpent. Someone said, didn't they? Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. It wasn't me, it was him. Or her. And thirdly, the brothers could have blamed things on their position. By that I mean their circumstances. You don't realise how hard things were for me. Anyone in my position, anyone in this position would have responded in the way I did. My life isn't fair. Things were too hard. Joseph here seems to cut to the chase. And the truth is that whatever their past, whatever other people had done, whatever their circumstances were, in the end, Joseph says, you meant it. You intended to harm me. These brothers couldn't excuse their behaviour by blaming someone or something else. Joseph seems, sees clearly that people really are responsible. And that means that when we do wrong, we ought to confess and own it rather than pointing the finger of blame at others. The third thing here that Joseph acknowledges is that God really is in control. This third thing that Joseph sees here is a very comforting truth. And I want you to underline the fact here that God intended all of this for good. And that means that God meant it too. You intended to harm me, but God intended it, intended it, meant it for good. God planned it. And I, I, I want to really underline this. It is not just that God knew the bad stuff that the brothers did and then did a brilliant job of working his magic and making the best of it. It isn't that God was surprised by what they did or that he was somehow incapable of stopping it if he'd wished to. Their evil intentions really were evil. They really were responsible. But this was not outside of God's plan. Somehow it was part of his purposes. Joseph has actually said this before, back in chapter 45, when he first revealed himself to his brothers in that emotional scene. Chapter 45 and verse 5, Joseph said to his brothers then, don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me. That's Joseph's perspective. God did this. That's how Joseph sees it. They really did it, but somehow God had also planned this for their salvation. I think as, jo as the slow cooker of Joseph's life is simmering here, Joseph now knows that it is a wonderful comfort that nothing happens that is outside of God's control. I, I wish we had more time to kind of unpick this. God controls nature. God controls the ebb and flow of human history. 
God controls individual lives and human decisions. I, I was chatting to someone in our church this week about Psalm 139. Uh, Psalm 139 verse 16 says this. The psalmist says, All the days ordained, ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God plans when and where we're born, how many our days of life will be. There's nothing that takes him by surprise or backs him into a corner or ties his hand behind his back. God is totally in control. And that means that nothing happens in your life that is random it, that, it is not that God is the author of evil, but everything that does happen can only happen under his sovereign control. I, I think we find this hard, don't we? Because it's hard for us to hold all this intention at the same time. If God is in control and all things are planned by him, we wonder whether this makes us humans simply robots who are pre-programmed but if, on the other hand, we are truly responsible agents, how then can God truly be in control? There, there is some mystery here for sure, but I, I want to suggest to you that the Bible doesn't force us to choose between those two extremes, as though they were incompatible opposites. Evil really is evil. People really are responsible. God really is in control. What a, what, a, what, a, what a blend, simmering in the slow cooker. The really striking thing, of course, here is that Joseph had even come to see that God's plans were also good. Even his catastrophic days, you intended it to harm me, but God intended it for good. I, I don't think that means that Joseph necessarily understood it all. But it definitely did mean that Joseph could trust God even in the days that seemed to go completely wrong. Of course, suffering is not good in and of itself. But God will and does and can use it to achieve his good purposes. In this particular story, you know that the whole purpose of Joseph's being sold as a slave into Egypt and then being thrown, the whole purpose of this was so that the whole family would be saved. And in fact, it's even more than that historically because God is trying to save this family because one day Jesus will descend from this family. So in fact, Joseph's suffering points to the fact that God is wanting to save the world one day through a descendant of this family, the Lord Jesus. If Joseph hadn't suffered in the way he did, there would be no Jesus either <laughs> because he descended from this very family. Joseph's theology here is consistent too with the rest of the Bible. And let, let, let's summarize before your eyes start to hurt too much of this slide, because there's more to come yet. 
when, when we're victims of or caught up in the evil of this world, we can cry. And when we're confronted with our own moral failure, we must confess it. And when we see that God really is in control and working out his good plans within this brokenness, we can be truly comforted. Now, here's the flip that I talked about. These words of Joseph in Genesis could just have easily have come from the lips of Jesus to the human race as a whole, actually, but particularly to the people who crucified him. Listen to Jesus saying these same words. You intended it to harm me, but God intended it for good. Joseph's words here in Genesis are so profound, but they're also true of the cross. And think about this. Evil really is evil. Humans really are responsible, and yet God is really in control. Judas, Judas Iscariot really did betray Jesus. Pontius Pilate really did condemn him as an innocent man to death. The Jewish leaders really did rile up the crowds to shout, crucify him. The Roman soldiers really did hammer nails into his body. And yet, mankind's worst sin had also been planned by God for the salvation of the world. So let's wrap up by highlighting three parallel truths here that apply Joseph's story to Jesus. We'll take them in a slightly different order. So that first of all, humans really are responsible, but Jesus saves. Just as the brothers' worst sin actually led to their own salvation, so the greatest wickedness this world has ever seen ever known was when the glorious eternal son of God was rejected and humiliated and crucified God himself came to our world in love and our world killed him to get rid of him the truly beloved son was stripped and sold and murdered and yet God planned to save the world through the death of his beloved son on a Roman cross. At the cross, God is totally against evil and judges it fairly and justly. And yet, at the same cross, God is also loving towards his creatures. The punishment that we deserve falls on Jesus so that we could be spared God's righteous judgment. Do you know what I really love about this passage in Genesis 50? It's how gracious Joseph is to his brothers. Their guilty fear even makes him cry. 
because they just don't understand how much he loves them. And Joseph says, don't be afraid. He dispels their fears. He forgives their wrongs and promises to provide for whatever they need. Do you doubt the love of Jesus? He went to the cross because he loved you. He died in order to save you. Will Jesus be any less kind to you when you come to him than Joseph was to his brothers when they came to Joseph? His heart is an ocean of compassion and kindness to those who are broken who somehow think he's going to be cross with them. We don't have to come up with a pathetic ruse like the brothers did. Oh, dad told us to tell you that you've got to forgive us. Joseph doesn't need that. And we don't need that when we come to Jesus. There's nothing to fear from him who is, who is so ready to forgive and provide for those who come to him in faith. Humans really are responsible, but Jesus saves. Secondly, evil really is evil, but Jesus sympathizes. And what, what I mean by that very simply is that when we feel the sting of hate, Jesus knows what that feels like. Isn't it incredible that Jesus has walked the same path that we walk? Jesus has really experienced the pain and hurt that evil causes. And he knows how that feels. He wept at the tomb of one of his closest friends. His compassionate heart was so deeply moved by the weary crowds he interacted with. Jesus experienced rejection. He knew what it was to be misunderstood and betrayed by people who had said that they loved him. And he endured agony and death upon the cross. We, we've spoken a lot in this series about faithfulness and future glory. The path that Joseph walked was one of suffering and then glory. And the path that Jesus walked was one of suffering and then glory. No one knows what that feels like more than Jesus. He endured the cross before he was exalted to the highest throne. The eternal Son of God, who is high over all, walked in our shoes. John Newton, who wrote the famous hymn Amazing Grace, wrote many letters, and one time he wrote this encouragement. How unspeakably wonderful to know 
all our concerns are held in hands that bled for us. How unspeakably wonderful to know all our concerns are held in hands that bled for us. If you are hurting, Jesus knows and understands and sympathizes. He's not distant or aloof, but near. He sees every tear. He shares in every pang of pain. Let him enfold you in his tender arms. And if you have cause to cry, know that he understands. Thirdly, and lastly, are your eyes hurting yet? God really is in control, which means that Jesus secures our future. If we were to go back to Joseph's story for a moment, I mentioned at the beginning that Jacob died, but the description of his death is quite remarkable and very wonderful. In chapter 49, and verse 29, Jacob himself says, I'm about to be gathered to my people. It's like, what a wonderful description of an impending death. And in verse 33, um, the last verse of chapter 49, when Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Gathered to his people. What an amazing depiction of death. Jacob knew that he was going somewhere where he would meet his believing forefathers again. There's something future there. And the, the other thing is that the incredible funeral procession in taking Jacob back to Canaan is literally taking him back home, isn't it? But think about this though. Jacob's family are fine in this moment. The Egyptians love them now. But eventually this Pharaoh dies too and Joseph's story is forgotten. And over the next few centuries, as this people grow into a nation, you'll know the story. They end up being abused and enslaved as people in Egypt. And 400 years later, God rescues these very people and they make the same journey that Jacob made all the way home to the land that God had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So like, Jacob, like Joseph, they suffer in Egypt for a while, but they do make it home to Canaan in the end. And I, I don't think that pattern is an accident. Jesus also suffered in his Egypt, if, if you like, but ultimately made it home. rising from the dead and ascending to his eternal throne. The point of all of this is to underline that if Jesus made it home, then God will bring all of his beloved people home to you. And every day that you and I live is a day nearer to that goal. So here's the thing. We may not know what's around the corner, we, we don't even know, truthfully, what tomorrow will bring, do we? 
But we do know that God is working things out and that the end is sure and that even the bad days are part of God's plan to get us there safely. Even when we're in the dark, we can trust that Jesus will bring us home. I think Joseph's perspective is summed up in chapter 50 and verse 28. He now knows that even the disasters in his life were part of God's good plan to save not just him, but a whole bunch of people and to bring them all home. But Joseph points us to one greater than himself. Jesus saves, Jesus sympathizes, and Jesus secures our future. We're done. It's not too bad, is it? Um, there is a majestic passage in the New Testament that is such a great echo of all that we've been speaking about. And I, I want to close our time today and our, and our series by reading together with you Romans chapter 8. should have given you Romans chapter 8 it's page 1135 in the church Bibles and I'm going to read from verse 28 down to the end let's hear God's word and let's hear how these words resonate with the simmering slow cooker of Joseph's life <laughs> And how beautiful it smells. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him 
who loved us, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.